0: So if you have your Bibles, turn to chapter 5 in Galatians, and I'm going to read here from, let's see, I'm going to start in verse 18 this morning, and we're going to go down to verse 24. So I'm going to read, and then um, we'll kind of break these down as we go. Paul says this, But if you are led by the Spirit... You are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. So this morning we see here that Paul is essentially providing us two lists. And these two lists are in some sense comparable with one another because they provide an evidence of something. And as humanity goes, we are often compelled by the pursuit of evidence in life, are we not? Scientists forge relentlessly to to discover the evidence of creation and the universe, right? Astronomers continue on on the path of discovering the formation of the solar system. Man is gripped by a natural curiosity A natural curiosity to discover the evidence that uncovers the mysteries of the genesis of the earth, the beginning of life, the evolution of man, the existence of God. Evidence in many ways transforms the unknown to the intelligible. It makes the curious comprehensible. It allows the perplexing to become plain. A man's quest for evidence that proves God's existence will forever be futile outside the truth of his word. Men will endlessly stumble and stammer and grope in the dark, attempting to arrive at a knowledge of God, but will never enter that illuminated room of revelation outside of his word. And that is, why we, that is why we do what we do this morning. That is why we, uh, we apply our minds to the study of the scriptures and to understand the truth so that God would reveal himself. Because outside of the truth of God, we stumble and stammer and we grope in the dark. We do not know who God is. Romans 1, you don't have to go there, but I, I will go there. Romans 1 verses 18 to 20, Paul says this about this reality. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So in our natural state as human beings, unregenerated in the mind, the the prevailing attitude of the culture out there is that they suppress the truth of God in their unrighteousness. That they see all around them the evidence of God, but they deny his existence. That is the state of the world that we live in. Paul goes on to say this, for what can be known about God is plain to them. It it doesn't take rocket science to figure out that there is a God. It is plain to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. And so aren't we. The idea here is is that you just go out into the creation and you see the form and the majesty and the wonder and the creativity. And the stability. And it reveals the divine nature of God and his power. So that no one is without excuse. Everyone can understand that there is a God through the evidence of creation. And so in this series, in this series that we're doing in Galatians, Paul we see here in this part of our text not only provides a list or an understanding of God creating and showing the evidences of himself in creation, but he also shows us the evidence of himself living inside a regenerated believer. And this is the list that he provides here in Galatians chapter 5. And this evidence, guys, it provides a sturdy assurance for us It's incontrovertible proof. It is to them or it is to us and it is to the Galatians that they have indeed either rejected the false gospel that has been given to them, the false gospel of works and the law and have heard and received the true gospel of grace, trusting in Christ to justify them, to redeem them, to save them and to sanctify them. See, this list is a set of assurances. It's a certainty. So often many Christians walk around in life uncertain and unsure if they're actually saved. They may have professed Christ at one point in time, and we'll talk about this in a moment. They may have, you know, gone to a conference or gone to an event and raised their hand and prayed a prayer. But that alone does not guarantee salvation, And I know that may sound strange to you, but it's only in accord with what the scriptures say. Salvation is evidenced through a life that is either led by one list or the other. And so Paul gives us this list as a way for us to be certain of our salvation. We can be assured if our life looks like this. And he wants the Galatian church to be assured as well. Because as we know, as we've gone through this, they have a decision in front of them. They have a false gospel that has been brought to them that is Jesus Christ and him crucified, plus your own work, plus your own performance. Or it is Christ alone and what he has done for you. You cannot add your work to Christ because then he, does not, he, does, he is not sufficient for what he's done for you. So if we add our work to his work, what we are saying is is that, Christ, you are dependent on me for my salvation. And so they are in this place of decision. And Paul gives them this list so that they can be assured that they have actually believed in the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Last week, we talked about the work of the Holy Spirit, and Paul continues on this theme. Last week, we talked about how Paul said that we are called to freedom. We are called to freedom, and the superlative benefits of freedom in Christ we talked about last week is the restraint of the truth of Christ. That is the truth of Christ that hems us in. That constrains us. Our freedom is not a, a freedom to do whatever we choose, but a freedom to love Christ apart from works that save us. Not only that, he said that your freedom is not only simply a restraint, but it also is expressed in your service, right? We said that we, when, when, when we are living in the freedom of Christ and believing in the gospel, that our natural proclivity is to serve one another. And then Paul says, in this, walk by the Spirit. How is it that you are going to live a life and participate in a life like this? It is through the power and the agency of the Holy Spirit. So then we talked about last week that the premier agency of freedom is the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work in us that allows us to live in freedom, that allows us to want to serve, that allows us to be hemmed in, hedged in by the truth. Not believing false teaching or false gospels or, or other teachings that will come our way, that will entice us to draw us away from the truth of Christ. Paul said, walk by the Spirit and you will, be grat- you will not gratify the desires of Of the flesh. And so last week we said this that the freedom to love Christ and to obey his word and to selflessly serve others is dispensed and apportioned by the obedience of faith. Faith in Christ and to the unshared, unique agency of the Holy Spirit's work of sanctification. And so this morning, Paul continues. On this theme of sanctification and the understanding of the evidences of sanctification. So, we all want evidences in our life. And we can take this to the bank that if our lives look like this and don't look like that, we can be sure that the process of sanctification is happening in our lives. But this process is not of our own doing, it is not of our own work. This is solely a work of the Holy Spirit. And you may say to yourself, well, I thought I partnered with God to, to sanctify myself. I thought I, I co-labored with God to say, I thought like, you know, I have some, don't I, don't I have something to do with, 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 with my life getting better? Yes and no. Yes and no. And I'll explain to you that in a moment but it is God through the Spirit that sanctifies, and it is God alone through the Spirit that sanctifies. It is an exclusive work of the Holy Spirit that sanctifies your life. If you don't believe me, let me show you a couple of scriptures. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 13 and 14. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers beloved by the Lord... Because God chose you as first fruits to be saved. Through what? Sanctification by the Spirit. And the belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's so much in there. I'm not going to unpackage that. I could spend a whole sermon just on that one passage, but I will say this. Our salvation is evidenced by our sanctification. And our sanctification is predicated on our belief in the truth. So it goes that without trusting Christ and believing in the truth of Christ and believing in the gospel of Christ, we cannot be saved And if we are not saved, then our lives uh, have no process of sanctification being born in it. That's what... Paul is saying, and this only comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it was so important for Paul to make clear to them the, these Galatians that if you believe this different gospel that's that's adding your work to his work, guess what? You cannot be saved by this, nor can you be sanctified by this. Why? Because you have not believed the truth, you have added your truth to Christ. John 17, 17 through 19 says this, sanctify them in the truth. Who's doing the sanctifying? God, Christ, through who? Through the truth. We know that the spirit comes as the spirit of truth. So if the spirit is living in you, the truth of God is being revealed to you, thus causing a sanctification process in you. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. For their sake, I consecrate myself that they would always be and also be sanctified in the truth. How is it that we are set apart from God? How is it that we understand and apply the sanctification process? How does the Spirit do that in the life of a man or a woman who has put their trust in Christ? It is through an adherence to the truth. It is loving the truth and living in obedience to Christ and his commands. So in these texts, we see here that Paul continues on this motif of of sanctification. And he he presents this relationship between justification... And sanctification, right? When we come to Christ and we put our trust in Christ, the one-time act is justification, right? It happens at once. At one time, it's not a progressive process, right? But we come before God, we come before Christ, profess our faith, we trust in him, he justifies us, which means we are looked at as righteous before God. We're seen as righteous before God because God sees Christ when he sees us, because Christ's righteousness has been credited to us by faith. So that is a one-time act, but this idea of sanctification is this lifelong process that is the evidence of salvation and justification. So he moves from the argument of justifying or justification in Christ to the evidence of sanctification by the Spirit. So it makes sense that we would identify or maybe describe exactly in terms what sanctification is. So what is it? Well, it is this. This is a good working definition if you want to write this down. Sanctification is this. It is a work of grace. It is a work of grace. As salvation is a work of grace, as justification is a work of grace, so is sanctification. It is not dependent on our spiritual work. It is a work of grace exclusively performed by God through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, whereby a follower of Christ is renewed. They are renewed in their whole being, consistently enabled to put sin to death and to live to righteousness. That's essentially what sanctification is. It's saying no to sin, yes to righteousness. No to self, yes to Christ. That's what sanctification is in the life of a believer. Sanctification is not holy living. Okay? Sanctification is not holy living. That's work which we participate in, but it's not sanctification, okay? Sanctification is not acceptable conduct. Sanctification is not upright behavior. And in a sense, sanctification is not even the obedience to God's commands. But sanctification leads to all of those things. So sanctification really is a means by which we participate in good works. Sanctification through obedience produces in us holy living, acceptable conduct, upright behavior, and obedience to Christ's commands. Does that make sense? So that in our performance to obey, we cannot take credit in the sanctifying process. But that is solely Christ's work through the Holy Spirit. Look at what Leviticus says in, in chapter 20, verse eight, He says this. God speaking to Moses, He says this, "Keep my statutes, keep my laws, keep my word, follow me. And what I've told you and how I have called you to conduct your life, follow me, keep my statutes and do them, for I am the Lord, who what sanctifies you? Who's doing the sanctifying? The Lord, not us. So it's so important to understand that as we talk about this list that Paul uh, gives us with regards to the fruits of the Spirit. So the key takeaway here is this, guys. A life that has been justified by faith in Christ, trusting in the saving work of the gospel, is a life that is being sanctified by the Spirit. That's how you know. That's how you know. We have effectually become a slave to Christ. We have become a slave to Christ by denying ourselves. And in that obedience, the fruit of the Spirit is produced by the Holy Spirit. So Paul... With this sort of dazzling clarity and and this, this undeniable precision, he provides for us this stark contrast, this black and white that distinguishes a life that has received the gospel and a life that has denied the gospel. And he shows us this contrast through this this corresponding unique list of evidences and results. He says, if you've received the gospel, your life will be lived this way. If you have denied Christ, your life will look like this. And then he goes on to provide that list. But it's an assurance of faith. It provides for the believer an assurance. And it provides for the unbeliever a decisive and sweeping reality of an unregenerated heart that is subject to God's divine holiness and eternal judgment. God will judge the unbeliever in their sin because the unbeliever has not believed in Christ who has taken the judgment of God upon himself, So when we have not professed Christ, those who have not put their faith in Christ still remain liable to God's judgment because God has judged sin through Christ. And so when we are in Christ, we are protected. We are clothed in the robe of righteousness. But those who have not received, those who have not believed, they are still liable to that judgment. Why? Because God cares a lot about his holiness. God renders his holiness to be of supreme value. And any affront, assault on that holiness is really a big deal to God. And so if God is just and he loves his holiness, how can he not take sin seriously? Because if he doesn't take sin seriously, then he doesn't take his holiness seriously either because of the assault that sin is on his holiness. So he must judge it or else he ceases to be God. I wanna just say this for a moment. These are the evidences of a life that have put their faith in Christ what we're about to read. I mentioned this a moment ago. Salvation is not near solely a matter of profession. Paul says that if you profess with your mouth and believe in your heart, right, that Jesus Christ is Lord, you will be what? Saved, right? Well, well then that settles it, does it not? All I have to do is profess, right? All I have to do is say, Lord, right? Right? I love you. I believe you. Lord, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are the Messiah, right? That's all I need. I just need a moment. I just need a time. I just need a, an event to go to and then get whipped up into this emotional frenzy and then just make a decision for Christ and uh, just think to myself, oh my gosh, I'm covered. All I've got to do is say a prayer. And I'm good. But that's not how God shows us and depicts the reality of salvation in the life of a believer. See, professing with your mouth and believing in your heart was not a one-time event. Uh, The verbs there that Paul is using in the tense that he's using them in the Greek is this idea of an ongoing process like sanctification. It's as I profess in with my mouth and as I believe with my heart, I am being saved. The Bible presents this idea of salvation both in the past, the present, and the future. We have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. So being saved is not simply just a profession at one point in your life. But the Bible really presents salvation as a present reality. That's why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, he said, those to me who came to me and said to me, Lord, Lord, they professed my name. What did he say to them? You're entering in through the wide gate. (laughs) You may have professed my name, right? But you're not living in obedience. You may be, uh, you know, performing all these spiritual wonderful works like casting out demons and prophesying and doing all of these amazing works, but guess what? You've never known me. That your, your life is not a progressive uh, process where you are continually professing my name and believing in your heart. You did not come through the gospel. You did not come broken over your sin. You did not come asking to be forgiven. You did not come humble and contrite. You came with pride. You professed my name for your own desire, which is to perform your own spiritual work. So salvation is not merely a profession. It's not merely a prayer. The idea of salvation and the evidence of it is the producing of fruit by the Holy Spirit. A life that has denied the true gospel is a life that still lives by the works of the flesh. It's a life that's in bondage to self A life that has not received the gospel cannot say yes to righteousness and cannot deny their own sin, but they live in it. This is what Paul says, those who have denied the gospel are still working in the flesh. This idea of flesh is this word in the Greek, sarks, and it doesn't necessarily always mean just skin or like the flesh you see on the outside. Paul does use this word for that context, in that context to um, convey that idea. But in this sense, what Paul is saying by serving our flesh is this, is that we're serving our mere human nature. Our human nature that is, you know, apart from any divine influence. That part of our nature that is spiritually weak and helpless, and prone to sin, and opposed to Christ. It's our fallen nature. It's our unredeemed self. The great news is is that if we've received the gospel, we have been given a new nature in Christ, a new spiritual nature, but at the same time, there is a residue of our human nature that we contend with, right? That we cannot live sinless lives just because we're born again but someone who has not received the gospel, this is the predominant um, sort of image of their life. They serve their own passions and desires. And Paul says this, that the works of the flesh, in Galatians chapter 5, he said, the works of the flesh, if you have not received the gospel, are evident. It means you can't hide them, (laughs) They're public. They're, they're out there. They're external. They're for everyone to see. They're apparent. There's an outward guise to them. That is, as much as you try to hide them and keep them secret, they will eventually show themselves. So here are the works of the flesh. Now, these are representative in the sense that they're not... Um, They represent a larger list, but Paul just uses these ones. Not only that, these are actions, okay? We have to keep in mind the difference. The works of the flesh are actions. We'll talk about this in a minute. The fruit of the Spirit are attitudes, right? So these are actions, and the fruits of the Spirit, or the fruit of the Spirit is attitudes, right? So they're a representative list, they're, 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 they're um, this, this idea of actions, and they're plural and they're personalized. In other words, you can be, and your life can consistently reflect more than one of these, and often do, but not all of them. So let's go through them quickly. First one that Paul says is immorality." So these first set we're not going to go through all of them, but there are three sets of these uh, works of the flesh that Paul talks about, the first set are sexual, uh, sexual work. It's, a, it's part of a sexual category. The, the second section is a, a religious section or a spiritual section in the sense that it, it regards um, idolatry or false worship. And then finally, ha- the final section has to do with human relations, okay? So here's the first one that Paul talks about. This is sexual in nature. He says, immorality is a work of the flesh, And the Greek word here is, you probably can render it in English pretty easily, porneia. Porneia. And this really is any illicit sexual behavior outside the bounds and the constraints of God's design. It's adultery, it's fornication, homosexuality, prostitution, incest. This all covers the gamut of sexual immorality that Paul lays out here. The next one is sensuality. This, in a sense, is unrestrained sexual desire. Proclivity to sexual excess. Demonstrating a lack of restraint or outrageous behavior. Second category here, we're going to go down to sorcery. If you see that in your text uh, in verse 20. Sorcery. You may understand this word in the Greek as well, pharmakeia, where we get the word pharmacy or pharmaceutical. This is basically occult religious practice, mystery religion. It is, in a sense, magic, enchantment, and it often sort of uh, contains this idea of administering uh, drugs to induce an altered state, so that we can connect with deities. So this is a very familiar practice in this time. And that's where we get the word pharmaceutical or pharmacy. The idea that there's, there's drugs involved or there's some type of administering of medicine. But it's a religious thing and it's idolatry because it's, it's going to God or trying to ascend to a knowledge of God through human means not through the truth of Christ, not through the revelation of God. And then finally, the last set have to do with personal relationships. So enmities, hostility, hatred, bitter conflicts, jealousy, to be hot or boiling over with anger, a fervent anger and covetousness, jealousy, envying, emulation, Right? Then he talks about disputes, dissensions, factions. These are sort of self-seeking uh, that causes quarrels. These are just self-seeking behaviors that cause quarrels. And, 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 and with, uh, you know, with a, a level of certainty, really, Paul is talking about these uh, types of works being caused by uh, divisions in the church. You see, there are factions and dissensions within the body of Christ, within the local body here, uh, and, and, and some people are part of this faction, and some people are part of this faction, and, and, and they're almost sort of rivaling one another. And so the church must be unified in their understanding and their pursuit of the truth of Christ. And so, Galatians, if you have not received the true gospel, this will be the reality of your life in the church. You may come to church, right? And you may, you may come to church and you may congregate with God's people. But this will be the distinctive uh, pursuits of your life. And then finally, he talks about drunkenness and orgies, the state of intoxication, And orgies is really this idea of letting loose or reveling or boisterous or crude behavior. These are the works of the flesh. These are the works of someone who has denied the gospel, who is not obedient to the work of sanctification that the spirit wants to do. And make no mistake, man does not need any assistance in these behaviors. These are simply natural desires of the unredeemed person. They're not brought about by some external source. Now, it is true that Satan can tempt us, absolutely. But these works that we participate in are on our own volition oftentimes we want to make excuse for our sin. We want to make excuse for the works of the flesh. We want to pass off the responsibility, right? We don't want to be accountable to our own actions. But make no mistake, these actions are on account of no one else, no other outside source, not even Satan. These are the works of an unredeemed Human nature. This is what Jesus says in Mark 7:20 20 to 23. He says, What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For from within, out of the heart of a man, come evil thoughts and sexual immorality and theft and murder and idolatry and coveting and wickedness and deceit and sensuality and envy and slander and pride and foolishness. All these evil things come from within. That defile a person. See the the culture. Like here's what I here's what I hear a lot with regards to to sin in us dealing with sin as people that are have the Holy Spirit living in us and we are participating in a we are you know we're we're in obedience to, to the pro, to the process of, of of God and the Holy Spirit and his sanctification process in us, right? I hear this a lot. I hear whenever we indulge or whenever we veer off or we're, we're, whenever we, you know, we're disobedient to God and whenever we, we deny the work of the Spirit in us, I hear, well, you know, Satan just tempted me and I sort of just took the bait. And there's this sense that all accountability has been passed off. That, that our uh, proclivity to sin is not because of anything that's within us. And, and that's just simply not true. That's not what Jesus says at all. In Mark 7, we see the, the, natural, uh, the natural proclivity of man to, to, to participate in these things outside of the Spirit. And the idea is, is that, oh, if we just get rid of all of the music and we get rid of all of the movies and we get rid of all the video games, we get rid of all the media, we get rid of all of the social media, all the temptation that the world offers, that man will just be better off, right? That, that All we gotta do is just clean up the world, and then we'll have a better, you know, we'll be better equipped to produce the fruit of the Spirit. But ultimately, what happens is is the culture is simply just a reflection of the heart of the inner man. That's the culture. It's just a reflection of the heart of the inner man, and we are not victims of our sin. We, we propagate it. <laughs> we are responsible for it. And we must take responsibility for it in order to repent. We are not victims. Satan, yes, does tempt. But Peter says, resist him and he will flee. We don't have to rebuke Satan. You know, we we don't have to destroy Satan. That's not our job. Our job, Peter says, is to resist. And what will happen if we resist? He will flee. And Paul in verse 21 says this, I warn you, those who do these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's some pretty harsh language. But this word here in the Greek, proso, is this idea of practice or repeated or habitual actions. So the idea is is that a life that is habitually living in this manner, constantly practicing these works, those are the ones who have not been regenerated by the Spirit of God and who are obedient to the work of the Spirit in sanctification. Let me just say that sometimes as Christians, although the power of sin has been broken and the persuasion of sin has been broken, the idea that the power of sin and what it does to us is broken... And not only that, the power of sin to convict and condemn and cause death is broken through Christ and the persuasion to live in accord with these works of the flesh has been broken, yet there is still the residue in our nature in the sense that we do still, in some sense, participate in that but it is not a prevailing, predominant, you know, uh, facet of our lives. But here is what should be. And this is what Paul says here in Galatians chapter 5, 22. He moves from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. He says, a life that has believed in the true gospel is a life that is being sanctified and will produce the distinct fruit of the Spirit. Now look at this. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. Think about that for a moment. The fruit of the Spirit is singular. So if the fruit of the Spirit is being actualized in your life through obedience, it comes in all of these forms. It's not like the works of the flesh where we just participate in two or three and then, you know, we don't have issues with the others. No, the fruit of the Spirit is singular in the sense that God wills to bring forth the completeness of all of these characteristics of the fruit. It is one fruit with many characteristics and many sides. And these are attitudes, not actions. But these attitudes lead to good works. See how God has taken control. God gets all the credit for the sanctifying process, not us. But what is it that we participate in? Good works that are a result of right attitudes. That makes sense? Okay. So the fruit of the Spirit produced completely is love. Love. This idea of agape love, this word in the Greek is agape, it's not phileo, it's agape. It's this understanding of personal choice, right? That we love as a choice. As a personal choice, we love one another as the church. It's self giving, it's sacrificial, it's not simply just good feelings or pleasurable emotions. And this is dominant and influential. This, in a sense, is the most dominant fruit that gives rise to the rest. So it's love, it's joy, it's kara, it's where we get the word charisma, joy. Exceeding in cheerfulness and delight and gladness. The idea that God is exceedingly abundant in cheerfulness and gladness and love. These are all attributes of God that He administers to us through the power and the work of the Spirit through our obedience. So it is, in a sense, God distributing His attributes into us in some measure. It is joy. And this is joy not determined by our present circumstance. It's precipitated by the spiritual reality of Christ's nature being formed in us. It's love. It's joy. It's kindness. This idea of kindness is this moral excellence in character. That God is the supreme expression of moral excellence. But God, in his gracious attitude, he administers that to us through the Spirit. This idea of kindness is a sense of forbearance in Christ. It's restraint that leads to repentance. The idea here is, is that God is patient. That God is patient that even when we tend to stray away from him, That God is patient with us. And not only he's patient with us, but his supreme patience is found in Christ in that he, in a sense, delivered or he participated in the forbearance of his judgment on sin through Christ that when Christ came, he took that and everything that demanded God's judgment before Christ, he participated in the forbearance of that until Christ came and Christ took it all on our behalf. God is patient with us even when we go astray, even when we tend to leave his counsel, even when we go through a season of life where we do not consider his direction. God is patient with us. And so it is, we are patient with one another. It is the patience of God that is actualized in us through the work of the Spirit. And finally, self control. This is not all of them, but these are just some. Self control, it's a strong, masterful restraint, diligence in attitude and actions. God possesses perfect control. He does not waver. He is not tempted to lose control. God is in perfect control all of the time. He's not swayed by the actions of men. His control is never undermined. But he possesses perfect control of all things as he sustains all things in creation and in our lives. His sovereignty is the epitome. It's paramount to his uh, absolute ability to live controlled. And so the fruit of the Spirit in some measure appropriates that to us through obedience. And you may say to yourself, well Chad I know people in my life that exhibit these, these things. I know people in my life that don't know Jesus that are self-controlled, that are patient, that are loving, that are kind. Well what about them? Like I don't need the holy spirit to actually see those things in my life because I see people in life in my life that don't know Christ that do these same things. They they can participate in the fruits of the spirit. What about them? Are you sure this is the holy spirit? Because it seems like other people can exhibit these same characteristics. And to a certain degree, that is correct. To a certain measure, that is correct. But here's the thing that we have to understand about that reality. Even with good works, even with charity that we see other people displaying in their life, these things cannot please God. You cannot please God with your good works and your charity and your right attitudes. Why? Especially if you are not in Christ. Why? Because it is impossible, Hebrews eleven six says, without faith, it is what? Impossible to please God. So if we are outside of faith, those who have not put their faith in Christ right? Those who have not put their faith in Christ, they participate in these good attitudes. How are they going about participating and bearing these good attitudes in their lives? Through the work of the Spirit or through the work of their flesh? It's through their own work. And so when God says, if you rely on your own work for everything that I provide for you, that cannot please me. So yes, to a certain degree, those who have not put their faith in Christ can exhibit, to a certain degree, some of these things. But ultimately, it cannot please God. Why? Because it's not done in faith. And that is what we get to hold on to. That is what we put everything on. That is what everything is built upon. It is built upon the faith we have and the trust in Christ to produce all of these attitudes. Not by our own work, but simply through our obedience. That's what he said. So unlike the works of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit is not a product of one's own ability. It will never be the outcome of our own performance. The fruit is Christ-saturated attitudes leading to Christ-exalting Good works. And these are birthed from and bear witness to the sweeping and the thorough power and work of the Spirit. Ending up here, verse 23, Paul says, against these things there is no law. Well, wait a minute, Paul. There is no law against these things. There is no law. These are actually the fulfillment of the law. Paul said that there is no law against these things. In other words, there is nothing to restrain these attitudes. In other words, you could participate in these things as much as you want. There is no restraint on your love. There is no constraint on your joy. Your peace is immeasurable. Your kindness can be displayed without any sense of hindrance at all. You can do this as much as you want. You can have all of the joy and the peace and the kindness and the patience you want. Have at it. It's a banqueting table. It's a buffet and it never ends. There is no law to prevent you from displaying these attitudes. No law. God has uttered no command that would restrain them. Because it is through the Spirit that God has done what the law could never do. The Spirit brings obedience in the life of the believer, not the law. But through the Spirit and the obedience, it gives us the desire to want to keep God's commands to follow God's word, to love God's truth. Paul talks about it in Romans 8. I'm not gonna go there because we don't have time. But finally this, Christ through the gospel has provided the perfect interpretation of the law. The law was eternally designed to affect the attitude of the heart. That was the purpose of God's law. It was never about outward performance. It was always about God through his word and his commands changing the inner man. And so the inner man is transformed through that sanctifying process leading to an obedience to God's word, to God's commands, to God's law. Jesus is the perfect interpreter. He is the perfect expositor of God's word because he is the word made Listen to this in in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. How is it that Christ has fulfilled the law? Christ has fulfilled the law in many ways. One, he has kept it perfectly perfectly so that his sacrifice for us is a perfect sacrifice. Christ has come and has perfected the law. He has kept it perfectly. Not only that, Christ is the fulfillment of the law. Why? Because the whole law and the prophets point to who? To Christ. In every sacrifice, in every feast, in every festival, it all points to Christ. The the totality of the prophets all have prophesied to the Messiah. That's why, you know, Paul, or the writer of Hebrews says that, you know, in the last days, God is speaking through who? Not the prophets, Christ, right? So he comes and fulfills the prophets and the law. He comes and fulfills it all. He comes and fulfills it in his work, in his obedience. Not only that, he comes and fulfills it through his deity, through his ministry, and all of it comes to its perfect fulfillment in Christ. He Interprets God's word perfectly. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with a brother will be liable to judgment. Perfect interpretation, right? Old law says don't commit murder Jesus says, no, that really means don't be angry, right? Then he goes on to say, don't commit adultery, okay? But if you even look at someone with lust in your mind, you're already committing adultery. In other words, it's not about your outward performance in your flesh. It's about your inward action in your heart, So Christ comes and becomes the perfect interpreter of the law of God. Does that mean that the law of God is no longer, uh, you know, good for us to follow? No, we ought to. Christ said, you must follow me. If you want to follow me, you must obey my commands. As the co-eternal son of God, God, Christ was in every way agreeing with the word of God in the Old Testament. He inspired it as the part of the triune God. And then finally, he says in verse 24, Paul in in chapter 5, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. If you are in Christ, you are constantly saying no to sin and yes to righteousness. You desire the fruit of the Spirit and you continue to hate the work of your flesh. So the fruits of the spirit of this is a manifestation of a new nature, is the righteous attitude that bears good works. It is the evidence of salvation through sanctification. So what is God saying about himself? This is what he's saying, and this is the application portion of our time together. This is what God is saying about himself in his word. It is so important to understand this. When we study God's word, the first question we must ask when we're done diving into it is this. What is God saying about himself? And then secondly, what is God saying about us? If we don't understand what God is saying about himself, we'll never understand what he's saying about us. So if we start with us, most likely we're gonna get that wrong. If we start with God then we'll have a better understanding of how we're supposed to see ourselves in this text. Okay? So this is what God is saying about himself. God will not leave us. God will not leave you on your own accord, on your own devices, to your own faculties once he has saved you. He exclusively, thoroughly, and completely is sanctifying you. He's doing that in your life. That is his work to do in your life. And he does it by the irrefutable and undeniable power of the Spirit. He does this through our obedience. Okay? He does this through our continual daily obedience to the work of the Holy Spirit. To Christ and our reliance on him for the forgiveness of our sin. I have a text here, 1 Thessalonians. I won't read it. It's 523 if you want to jot it down in your notes. And then finally, what is God saying about us? This is what he says. Saying no to sin and yes to righteousness is not the result of your collaboration with him. It is not a consequence of your cooperation with the Spirit. It is the product of our faith in Christ, our repentance of sin, and our trust in the gospel. Most importantly, it is the product of our faithful obedience to the energizing and sanctifying work of the Spirit producing the undeniable evidence of fruit. Amen?